It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, January 17th, 2022. It's a brand new broadcast week here on The Guy Benson Show, and we are delighted to have you all along every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you for tuning in live as we air. If you can't, thank you for checking out our free podcast on demand, GuyBensonShow.com. All of your needs for the program right there and the podcast free of charge, GuyBensonShow.com. Here's what we have on tap for you today as we begin the week. Kim Strassel, we had some wires crossed and some technical difficulties on Friday with Kim. She is back here today looking forward to having that conversation. Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics will also drop by with his analysis. Some new polling from Gallup and CBS News. It is dark, dark stuff. President Biden and his party, we will review. Coming up a bit later after that, Corey DeAngelis, a major school choice activist and advocate, will be here talking about what's going on in Virginia. We'll get to that in a second. And elsewhere, a telling, shall we say, mistake or really admission by the Democratic Party of the state of Michigan. We will touch on that with Corey. And finally, it is Martin Luther King Jr. Day in the United States. And we will be joined by Juan Williams for reflections on Dr. King on his legacy, and the impact he made in this country. Fox News alert as we begin. Let's bring you stats. COVID cases all in, cumulatively, in the United States. The confirmed number, it's not even close to the real number, which is much higher, but the confirmed number is 65.8 million cases. The death toll, Americans who have died with or of COVID over these last nearly two years, 849,000. 976. And as we alluded to just briefly there a moment ago, it was a big day over the weekend. On Saturday in Richmond, Virginia, a new governor was installed. Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, who won last November, erasing a 10-point Biden victory margin in the Commonwealth and winning by two. He was inaugurated before a cheering crowd. And here is the tail end of Governor Youngkin taking the oath of office, cut 29. And that I will faithfully and impartially discharge all the duties incumbent upon me. All of the duties incumbent upon me. As governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. As governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. According to the best of my ability. According to the best of my ability. So help me God. So help me God. And a bit of a cathartic moment there for people who worked very hard for his victory and who were very pleased to see a changing of the guard in Virginia. And boy, is that change pronounced for reasons that we will address here in just a second. But in his inaugural address, Youngkin said a few things that echoed his themes and refrains from the campaign trail, saying, yes, indeed, 
this is what we're going to do. And unsurprisingly, he focused on education. Cut 27. And we know that when our children don't go to school, it harms their learning and their development. So let me be clear, we must keep our children in school five days a week. I mean, it's the bare minimum. It's sad in some ways that this is in any way an applause line where a politician has to say we have to have our kids in school five days a week. Like it's controversial or like that hasn't been happening and yet it has not. He also focused on the importance of parents in their kids' educations. Cut 28. Parents should have a say in what is taught in schools. They should have a say in what's being taught in schools because in Virginia, parents have a fundamental right to make decisions with regard to their child's upbringing, education, and care. To parents, I say we respect you and we will empower you in the education of your children. We love to hear it. That's the Glenn Youngkin who won. So within minutes of being sworn in, Governor Youngkin issued a flurry of executive orders. For instance, he lifted the mandate on state employees on COVID vaccinations. That will hopefully deal with some of the shortages that we've been seeing. He did that. He also banned the teaching of critical race theory by executive order. I saw a bunch of lefty progressives mocking him for this, saying, oh, he campaigned on a lie about critical race theory, which doesn't exist, and now he's banned the fake thing, and people actually think he's done or accomplished something. Of course, that unto itself is a lie. Terry McAuliffe tried this line of attack. Oh, it's not taught in Virginia. This isn't real. They're lying. It's a racial dog whistle. It's all in their heads. It's made up. People didn't buy that because it wasn't true, because they could see it in their communities and their schools of the racialized curricula and the indoctrination and the identity obsession that absolutely, unfortunately, has started to creep into a lot of our education systems across the country. And often the left brags about it until people object and then they say, no, it's all in your imagination. One of the clear examples that we've given along the way when Terry McAuliffe, Youngkin's opponent, was lying about this, was just citing explicit references to critical race theory on the Virginia Department of Education website. You can just quote it, even though they insist all along that it doesn't really exist. It does exist. It's toxic. It's pernicious. And Youngkin banned it. In his speech, he said, we're going to teach our history, the good and the bad, all of our history, but we're not going to pit kids against each other based on their skin color. That's paraphrasing, but that's virtually what he said. It's what he campaigned on. And I hope we continue to hear this from the left. Oh, it's not real. It's fake. It's phony. It's a hoax, CRT. Keep going with that. I know they were also saying, oh, it's crazy that parents should have a role in this. Parents shouldn't have the role. Come campaign with me, Randy Weingarten. Worked great for Terry McAuliffe. The Democratic Party of Michigan effectively reiterated that contempt in a Facebook post. And then they had to delete it and apologize. We'll talk about that with Corey DeAngelis later. 
They're not learning lessons, and I hope they continue to not learn them. They're going to get wiped out, and they're going to deserve it. And then the other thing that Youngkin did that's getting so much attention is he lifted the school mask mandate in Virginia. Now, this is being framed as some people who are either dumb, ignorant, or dishonest. It's being portrayed as a mask ban. Like Glenn Youngkin's going to send in the National Guard to rip masks off the faces of defenseless children. There is no mask ban. This is just like Florida. They did the same thing. What the government is now doing is telling parents, it is your choice to make decisions for your kid about school masking. And if you're one of these parents, a safetyist parent, who is still laboring under the mystical, superstitious delusion that a mask will actually stop COVID and prevent transmission of COVID, by all means, go for it. You can have your kid wear a mask until they're 18, maybe two or three masks, until they seek judicial relief and ask a court to emancipate them because they can't take it anymore. But if that's what you want to do as a parent, that's your call. If you want to have a fitted surgical or N95 mask, like a suction cup on your kid's face, go for it. Knock yourself out or maybe knock them out by accident. But go for it. That's your call as a parent. If you think that is what is prudent and safe for your kid, that is your choice. But if you're a parent who actually looks at the science and looks at reams of data from the UK and from the EU and from private schools in this country and from Florida and from elsewhere, I saw some data out of Colorado, for example, where there were three counties with school districts. Two of them went with a full mask mandate. The third lifted the mask mandate, or did not impose the mask mandate, and then there was the trajectory of community cases. And it was just identical in all three communities. The trajectory was exactly the same, no difference on the school masking. In fact, the one county that was at the lowest case rate at the peak of Omicron was the county that didn't impose the mask mandate in schools. That's just one tiny example. We have read from New York Magazine. We have read from The Atlantic. There is so much science and data, a huge study out of the UK that we referenced last week that the BBC reported. There is no strong evidence, if any, that there is any statistical benefit whatsoever to having masks on students for hours a day in school. Even safetyist COVID obsessives like Dr. Wen at CNN, she said most masks that people are wearing, cloth masks, are facial decorations. They do nothing. We're amid Omicron where it's very transmissible, but less severe, less virulent. There's a new study out that shows even less virulent among kids, unsurprisingly. So the extremely vanishingly low risk to kids gets even lower in the age of Omicron. There's no evidence that the masking in schools helps. And what Youngkin is doing is liberating parents just to make choices for their own family. They can follow the science or they can follow their feelings and both would be allowed. But that's not what these progressives and neurotics want. They want everyone forced to do what they think ought to be done. And they say, if you disagree, you want kids dead. 
or you don't care about the safety of children. And it doesn't matter how much data you show them or how many case studies you bring to their attention. They believe that masks are like a mystical totem. It's like a proxy fight over a little piece of cloth that is about tribalism and demonstrating one's right thinking as opposed to any actual science. That's what we're witnessing. That's what a lot of this furious pushback is about. And we've seen the media going after Yunkin on this, saying, I can't believe he's doing this, even during this Omicron spike. If anything, the Omicron spike is making the point even more obvious. We haven't had giant outbreaks in schools. Kids are getting even less sick than they were before. And cloth masks don't do anything. But that's not good enough. They also don't care about a lot of the findings that we've seen, and there was a long piece about this in The Atlantic as well, about the actual harms to kids in their development, social, academic, etc., being forced to wear a mask eight hours a day. There are actual documented downsides. There is no statistical database upside, and yet the science fetishists believe that the opposite of the science is what the science ought to be. And anyone who disagrees must be resisted as an anti-science nutter. So they all flip out. I mean, it has been a meltdown in Northern Virginia that Governor Yunkin has dared to give parents an opportunity to make a choice for their family and for their kids based on the science. Like, they're so shocked that Yunkin has done this, even though he campaigned on it, was attacked for it. I saw those ads constantly on TV. Glenn Yunkin wants to get rid of... Mask mandates in schools. They attacked him for it, and he won. And the science is on his side. But you're seeing some of these very blue counties just announcing almost immediately, yeah, we're going to ignore the executive order. We're not going to comply. All of a sudden, executive orders are bad again. They have the force of law and suck it up and deal with it. Elections have consequences. That's what they say to conservatives about Biden executive orders. But then all of a sudden, no, not not so much with uh, this governor doing the thing he campaigned on that he was savaged for and won anyway, because he was right. So Arlington County, Alexandria County, they're saying, actually, we're going deeper into a mask mandate. We're going to require special kinds of masks now for every single student. Fairfax County, there are some other counties that will probably waver or maybe get on board in this resistance effort, and Yunkin needs to fight them. He has authority as governor. During the last administration, under the last guy, A bunch of communities that didn't want school mask mandates had them anyway by order of the governor. And now there's a new guy in charge because that's what Virginians voted for. Fight these people. And if that takes lawsuits, if you've got a kid in one of these districts, especially a special needs kid who's really harmed by masking and hurt by masking, if you send your kid as a parent through your choice, not with a mask on to school, they get sent home or there's some sort of repercussion or ramification, lawsuit time. This is a fight worth having. It's a fight on behalf of science, on data-driven public policy, on the value and importance of elections, and the well-being of children. If you're not going to fight on that, why bother? A good start for Glenn Youngkin, a predictable start for his opponents, and the battles are underway already. It's the Guy Benson Show. Much more to come. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Governor Youngkin was asked about the initial refusal, first of Arlington County in Virginia, now others, to comply with his executive order on masks in schools, saying, nope, we're not going to do that. Everyone has to still wear them. We don't care. And a reporter asked this question of Youngkin. Here's his response. Cut 18. Well, first of all, we wrote the order specifically to give all of the school systems basically eight days to get ready to listen to parents. And the fact that that tweet came out from Arlington County within minutes of my executive order, well, what that tells me is they haven't listened to parents yet. And if there's one thing that hopefully everybody heard in November is it is time to listen to parents. So over the course of this week, I hope they will listen to parents because we will use every resource within the governor's authority to explore what what we can do and will do in order to make sure that parents' rights are protected. Good. He says every resource. I hope that he means that. I hope that he is rolling up his sleeves for this battle because it's a very early test of his resolve and his leadership. He probably anticipated this, and it has been such a centerpiece, parental rights, of his successful campaign that I would guess that he is prepared. By the way, when I've been citing data and science on this stuff, on social media, defending Yunkin, defending parental choice on the issue of masks, I've gotten all this pushback, including from blue checkmark reporters and that sort of thing, sending me old studies that we've already debunked on this show that I've written pieces about. And not just me, non-conservatives in mainstream outlets saying, yeah, that study actually doesn't prove what it's saying. Or that headline from NPR, for example, is deeply misleading. They are relying on shoddy or non-existent data to confirm their feelings. And their feelings need to matter less than what is in the best interest of children based on actual data and actual science. Yunkin is on the side of science here. And his opponents, those attacking him, including Jen Psaki from the White House, she was tweeting, I'm an Arlington parent. Thank you, Arlington schools, for doing this. They are not on the side of science. Even as they believe themselves to be, the battle is engaged It's a topic that I've talked about a lot here, and we'll be following it very closely, indeed, on The Guy Benson Show. Kim Strassel, upcoming. Stay with us. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back on the program, I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is free every day there at GuyBensonShow.com and wherever you get your podcasts. We are joined now by Kimberly Strassel. She is the Potomac Watch columnist for the Wall Street Journal. 
Fox News contributor. Check out her most recent book, Resistance at All Costs, at Kim Strassel on Twitter. Kim, great to have you back. Hi, guys. Great to be here. I want to start with this. Your book that I just referenced is called Resistance at All Costs, and that's what we're already seeing from Democrats in blue counties in Virginia. Governor Yunkin has just been governor for you know a day and a half, basically, at this point. He's following through on campaign promises, and already you have jurisdictions saying we're not going to comply. We're not going to listen to your executive orders. We're going to keep forcing kids to wear masks in schools, all of them, no matter what the parents say. And a few things strike me about that. I feel like you've got sort of the rule of law at stake. You've got parental rights at stake. You've got data-driven public policy at stake. You've got the well-being of children at stake. And you've got lefties from Jen Psaki all the way down taking the other side in this fight in the name of science, even though it's absolutely not supported by the science. And I can't help but recognize and observe that a lot of the people who are absolutely positively sure that it is wrong and dangerous and deadly for Republican governors to give parents a choice on this matter, a lot of those same people, it's almost a perfect circle, the Venn diagram, are the same folks who were catastrophically wrong when it came to science and the well-being of children on school closures for a year. And it's like they want all of us to just forget how terribly and harmfully wrong they were on that and go along with their new sort of area for hysteria. And I just wonder what your thoughts are as we're seeing this really big skirmish breaking out on day one, now day two of the Yunkin governorship. Yeah, you know, my basic rule of thumb these days, Guy, is that whatever Democrats are accusing Republicans of doing, it's what they're actually doing themselves. And as you just said, you know, for five years, we got all of these uh, warnings and hysteria about Donald Trump and his administration and how, you know, he was a tyrant and a budding dictator and destroying standards and the rule of law. And yet what we really have are Democrats who, and this goes to your point, they take this moralistic approach where they argue that their position is somehow superior and that because they're fighting on the side of angels, that they're justified in doing whatever they want to do, uh, even if that is, as you say, defying uh, the rule of law, um, defying executive orders that the new governor is putting out. Um, and it's Defying a, a evidence? Little, defying, defying data? Defying evidence. Right, right. And defying data. I mean, this is the thing is we just went through two years of everybody losing all of their confidence in the so-called experts with their varying guidance and they're, they're being flat out wrong on so many things. And yet people are still defaulting to that, to the Democratic elite. They will default to it whenever they uh, want to cherry pick data and, and so that they can put their agenda in place or simply make everything a political fight. Which is what they have also done to transition to one of your most recent pieces when it comes to so-called voting rights. We saw the speech last week from President Biden. It was extremely ugly down in Georgia. We're seeing polling today that he's just totally out of touch with the American people. His numbers are terrible. This is not what people want him to be focused on. They don't believe that there's a voting rights crisis in the country because there is not a voting rights crisis in the country. Going back to an expanded voting rights regime that is just slightly less expansive than the emergency pandemic protocols is not voter suppression. 
And yet the president said, if you disagree with that, then you're Bull Connor incarnate. Uh, the, the weekend was spent on social media and on MSNBC in these places dragging Democratic senators like Cinema and Manchin as, as racist, you know, racist segregationists and, and all the nonsense. Biden has sort of tried to walk it back a little bit in private comments uh, with senators and the White House. Oh, he wasn't trying to mean it personally when he was making those uh, horrible comparisons. But we all heard what he said, Kim, and the damage is done. And it's also not resonating beyond a very small sort of click within the Democratic radical base that Biden defeated. And he's governing like he's totally scared of and beholden to these people that he defeated in the primary. It's a very weird thing to me. Well, do you remember who, who could forget? We had another president who went down to Georgia a little more than a year ago on the eve of those Senate runoffs and told a bunch of untruths about uh, election laws and voting and what had happened in the 2020 election. And it boomeranged on him. Uh, Republicans lost those Senate seats. He demoralized uh, their base. They didn't come out. What Biden did uh, this last week is exactly the same. It's remarkable to me that he went down and he told a pack of untruths about these things, as you said, totally nonsense. The argument that this Georgia voting reform in any way is Jim Crow or is any way suppressing the vote. It's simply nonsense. Um, And the other thing he did, which I think is worth noting because it's pretty despicable, is somehow tying the notion that you need to have this H.R. 1, the, the Democratic voting changes, in order to prevent another January 6th attack. You know, neither of those two pieces of legislation, the Freedom to Vote Act or the John Lewis bill, has anything to do with preventing another January 6th attack. We have a federal government that's got many tools to prosecute those who broke into the Capitol and have been doing so. And nothing in those bills expands or improves on those powers. Yeah, it's a non sequitur. So, it's a non sequitur. So I don't know what he's doing uh, other than, I mean, look, the really cynical view here is he actually said in that speech, if we don't pass this bill, your vote won't count. OK, that, again, much like Trump did, it's only going to discourage people from going out to vote. Well, can I ask you, let me just push back on that, because I think that's a very fair comparison to what Trump did in Georgia by, I think, having a very major role in blowing those Senate races. And in some ways, it seems like he is determined to reprise that in other places and perhaps even Georgia again. That's another topic for another day. He did convince a bunch of Republican voters that their votes wouldn't count, so they stayed home, and the Democrats stuck together, showed up, and won. The one question that I have is, will Biden saying all this stuff have the same effect on Democratic voters? Or, I sort of suspect that the Democrats have determined over time that the louder they scream voter suppression the more they're able to turn out their people using that fear. I mean, the louder they say voter suppression, turn up has gone up every time they say it. So I wonder if that's the cynical game that they're playing, saying we can lie constantly about this stuff, and the more we lie to our base, the more fearful they get that democracy is about to end, and the more likely they are to show up and vote for us. What do you think of that? Yeah, well, that was actually exactly where I was going in terms of the cynicism. So if, if they if they on the one hand were to demoralize their base and they not turn out, guess what? They're going to turn around and say the only reason we lost is because Republicans cheated. Right. Um, but if they they come out uh, and they and they manage 
with this ploy to get people then then they are doing better in the election they're winning so it's a it's a win-win in Biden's perspective either way but it's incredibly harmful to the body politic in that it's a it's a bunch of nonsense it's a pack of lies and it's not at all the unity and coming together and we can't be each other's enemies and let's cooperate i mean this is what he said the day that he declared victory in november of 2020 he gave that speech with everyone honking the horns out in delaware talking about his mandate from the voters was decency and cooperation and we're not going to be each other's enemies and we're going to come together and we're going to come back to normal we need to take a breath and lower the temperature that is what he said that was his promise. That was his very self-aware, I would say, correct identification of his actual mandate, which was not so much as a, of a governing mandate as it was um, a, a mandate on leadership style. And what we saw last week was a total betrayal of all of that. And it doesn't seem like it's actually going to go anywhere because they don't have the votes to do any of this stuff. So th- that's the next level here that I want to dig into because you wrote a column what's Chuck Schumer up to I've been wondering the same thing Schumer I know some of the conventional wisdom is oh he's worried about his left flank in New York he's worried about AOC and a primary challenge so he's doing all this stuff that may not be politically smart for his party but it might be helpful to him in New York I'm just not sure if other senators would be happy to go along with that like a one-man you know protection crusade if it would if it would hurt them and their political chances and the party's chances writ large. But, Kim, it is sort of mystifying. It's very confusing to look at. And you see, okay, they fail on Build Back Better. They don't take Joe Manchin's demands seriously at all. That burns them terribly. They fall short there. They seem to be just dead in the water on that major uh, you know, policy agenda item for Biden. And then to pivot away from that failure about which the left is furious... They go on to this next thing, which is uh, kind of like a, a fictional, fear-mongering fable that motivates the base and no one else because it doesn't really apply to their lives, to, to the average person. And they also don't have the votes on that. And in order to get the votes on that, they'd have to change the rules of the Senate and break the rules of the Senate, for which they also didn't have the votes. It's like, what exactly is he doing? is he doing here? Is there a strategy here? I don't think so. And I, this is a really important point, because if there was a strategy, it could not look like this. This strikes me as Schumer uh, channeling the left and, and catering to the left's rage. I mean, look what he said when he came out and announced that this is what they were going to do. Uh, He sounded like Bernie Sanders. He was repeating the things that Bernie Sanders had said, make them go to the floor and put their vote down on the floor. It's being done to humiliate or to pressure Manchin and cinema. They're not going to change their minds. So this is a way of I don't know what it's it's what the left wants to see. But the one thing that I would point out is the the contrast of this to Mitch McConnell, whether you like Mitch McConnell or you don't like Mitch McConnell or his policies or whatever. One thing that makes Mitch McConnell a very good leader is he never does anything that hurts his own members on the floor. You know, he will take heat in order to 
protect his members because he understands that staying in power is about getting people reelected. And this is the mystifying thing about Schumer here is that put aside Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, there are a number of other senators up for reelection this this year, uh, who are in the potential now of having to take some very tough votes, because, by the way, the way that they're looking to do this bill is to avoid a cloture vote in the beginning, which means they'd actually get on the bill and have a debate about it. Imagine some of those amendments that could come along and everyone's going to have to be on the record for a bill that is not going to pass in the end. Um, Why would you do that other than, again, I think you were... It's dumb. You're channeling the left's rage. You, Chuck Schumer may feel he has no choice but to do this in order to ward off that AOC primary. I don't know. But this is not good member management at all. Kim Strassel, last question. There is a developing story over the weekend in Texas at a synagogue where there was a terrorist, apparently who came here from the U.K. There have been arrests also in the U.K., so this was not a lone wolf. But uh, this this terrorist held hostages at the synagogue. He was ranting for hours, anti-Semitic stuff, demanding the release of another terrorist. Uh, There was a happy ending to this. All the innocent hostages were able to escape or were released unharmed, including the rabbi, and the terrorist is dead. So there is some Texas justice there. It was a very scary situation. There are, of course, lots of stupid, awful hot takes in the middle of it, political stuff, Anti-Semitism is an absolute scourge. Terrorism is real. Uh, it was it was a scary a, a scary incident, and it's just a disgrace that synagogues across this country require armed security and across the world. It's just awful. The FBI, you've written a lot about the FBI. They came in and and they did a nice job in in helping resolve the situation. But in the spin world, when they came out to the cameras, you had the FBI saying, "We don't really know if." Jews were actually targeted here, even though it was an anti-Semitic guy yelling anti-Semitic stuff taking over a synagogue. It's like literally could not be more obvious. And yet for what 24 hours or so, the FBI was sort of a question mark on the motive. They finally came out under pressure and clarified and sort of cleaned it up. But that was a confidence-shaking announcement from them. And unfortunately, it's not the first one. Two things that really bother me about this situation. One is how the guy get in and how we not know about him beforehand. Now, there's varying information about how much the Brits knew about him and whether or not he was on any watch list. Uh, They're still trying to sort through all of that. But, you know, the ease with which this guy just came here. Um, you know, we, we, we need to make sure that amid all of these kind of crazy domestic policy debates that we're having, that we're not taking our eyes off the, the all-important ball, right? Um, and so that's, that's the first thing. And, and we could get into a conversation as well. The FBI running around chasing false Russia collusion hoaxes. But one of the big scary questions is, is it really minding the field? Is it doing what it should well, be Well, they're going to investigate school board meetings, right? Because the DOJ right. told them to, right? That's what they're on. Correct. One, Correct. one minute, and Kimberly, so that, just so you know. One minute that, left. That's a scary, yeah, that's a scary thing. But the second thing is, as you said, the sort of PC nature of this. Um, we're not going to be able to identify and deal with threats unless we're willing to name what those threats are. And as you said, anti-Semitism is one horrible one. And we need all of our law enforcement to be ready and willing, unpoliticized, to stand up and just call things what they are. Indeed. Uh, that's very well said. And it's sad that that needs to be said. 
about anti-Semitism in this case, whether it's from radical Islam or from white nationalists or whomever. But the truth is the truth, and it took them a while to say the obvious truth, but they finally did. So I guess better late than never on that front. Kimberly Strassel, columnist at the Wall Street Journal, Fox News contributor. Kim, always enjoy it. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks, Guy. Thanks for having me. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. So I want to bring you this small story, but it's just one of many. Just adding to the list from Newsom to Pelosi to Mayor Breed to Governor Whitmer to Mayor Bowser. On and on it goes. Democrats with rules for thee, but not for me from their perspective. This one involving New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand who, of course, hilariously ran for president, you might remember. You probably forgot, but she did. Trust me, she did in 2020. Didn't really go too far. Her highlight of her campaign was, I believe, in Iowa during Pride Month. She had her staff film her at a gay bar drinking and then just shouting to no one in particular in a totally organic moment. She just went, gay rights! It was the laziest pander I've ever seen in my life. Anyway, that Senator Gillibrand, she was on camera in New York, at a restaurant, ignoring signs that said that masks were required. Of course, this is the policy in New York and Governor Hochul and all that. She blew right past the manager. So ignoring the manager, ignoring the signs, there she is on camera, no mask, because she wanted to go join her party and have a meal. She's over it. That's fine. A lot of us are over it. But she's from the party and the tribe that still wants to force face coverings onto six-year-old children eight hours a day for no good reason, but not in their own lives. She was asked about it. She said, I'll do better. Yeah, I doubt it. It's the Guy Benson Show. Another hour coming up. You don't want to miss it. Stay with us. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Thank you for tuning in. 3 to 6 Eastern Daily. If you can't listen live during those hours, there's a podcast for that. It is free. On demand every day, GuyBensonShow.com. We have no update for you on the markets today because they're closed for MLK Day. And we will reflect on that and the man himself with Juan Williams coming up in our next hour. Joining us now is Tom Bevan. Co-founder, president of RealClearPolitics.com, at Tom Bevan RCP, his handle on Twitter. Tom, good to have you back here. Great to be with you, Guy. Some numbers to unpack with you here on this Monday. Gallup getting a lot of attention with their numbers that they just put out, their polling data where they tracked party identification in the United States over the course of year one of the Biden presidency. And so at the beginning of 2021, last year, Democrats had a nine-point advantage on party ID, meaning people who say, I'm a Democrat or I am an independent who leans toward the Democrats. They were up by nine points, 49 to 40. And over the course of the year, every quarter, the numbers eroded for the Democrats and gained for the Republicans by the third 
quarter, if you will, it was a virtual tie. They were deadlocked. And by the very end of last year, going into this election year, the Republicans had actually taken a five-point lead on this metric, where there are more Republicans self-identified or Indies leaning R than Democrats. So that's easy math, even for someone like me. That's a 14-point <laughs> net swing in a year under President Biden. And I think when you look at all the other ways that we track midterm elections, historical precedent, presidential approval, right track, wrong track, you know, people retiring and not seeking re-election, all of it seems to be snowballing, at least for now, with 10 months to go, snowballing into what could be a pretty significant Republican uh, midterm cycle. What do you make of the Gallup numbers that are getting a lot of, uh, a lot of coverage and attention here today? Yeah, I mean, obviously, they've got to be concerning for Democrats. I mean, I think some of that is probably exaggerated a little bit. You know, Trump, when he left office, uh, that when that measure was taken in January, that was around, you know, right after January 6th, uh, Trump was at his lowest point. There were probably a lot of folks who, who didn't want to identify themselves as Republicans. Um, and so that might be one reason that that number might could be a little bit exaggerated. Gallup did mention that the in the, the last time that they took this poll in December, that the the erosion among Democrats seemed to have eased a bit and they were more evenly matched, uh, Republicans and Democrats, about 46 percent each. So but but obviously in the aggregate, to your point, um, this is the it's very rare for Republicans to have a lead of any kind in this metric, let alone a five point lead. It's the largest they've had. Since they took over the House in 1994, this was they had a five point lead in 1995. So that helps put this in a little bit of historical perspective in terms of the political landscape and which way the political winds are blowing. It is another example, uh, another data point that shows Republicans are in, as you mentioned, at least at this point, a pretty strong, pretty strong uh, position vis-a-vis the 2022 midterms. And Tom, just digging in a little bit more to these uh, these Gallup findings, and I saw Josh Jordan from Twitter. He said this. He said, this seems like it's a shift across the board with the biggest movement coming from the middle. He said that should scare the life out of Democrats because it's not MAGA. It's more moderate voters leaving for the GOP. And sure enough, if you look at their fourth you know, end-of-year numbers on this, People who describe themselves in this country as Democrats, it's 28%. Republicans, 28%, so tied. But it's Democratic-leaning independents down five points from the beginning of the year, and Republican-leaning independents up four points from the beginning of the year. So you add that up, that's a nine-point swing among the leaners. Then you've got that middle group of pure independents. They say they don't. You know, they don't lean in either direction. That's roughly 9 or 10% of these respondents. And generally, Tom, correct me if I'm wrong, historically speaking, those swing voters, the pure independents, tend to swing against an unpopular president, especially in the first midterm of an unpopular, or any president's first term, but especially an unpopular president's first term. CBS has a poll out that we can talk about here in a second that has the president's approval rating among independents underwater by 30 points, 30. And so 
between the leaners moving the direction that they have and then the pure independents trying to sort of divine the way that they might vote if they show up at the polls, that's also part of this story that has to be distressing for the Democrats. It's not just a bunch of Republicans getting super fired up and the enthusiasm gap and whatever. And that's a real thing, too, that Democrats, I think, have to worry about that could be benefiting the Republican Party in November. But if you've got moderate independent voters who had sort of stampeded away from Republicans for a while, if they start not just trickling back but coming back more in earnest, that is the recipe for what could be a real wave. Absolutely. And, and another data point that supports that is that Quinnipiac poll that came out last week, Biden's yep. approval rating among independents was at 25 percent. So one out of four independents approves of the job that he's doing. And this, this really highlights the trouble that the Democrats and this administration are in because, you know, you can't win elections without, you know, getting your base excited and turning them out. But that's not always enough, especially especially in some of these competitive races, Senate races in, you know, purple states like Arizona, Nevada, Georgia and the like. You need your base, but you need moderate voters. You need swing voters. You need independents. And so but the administration, the strategy that they're they've embarked upon here just in the last couple of weeks is explicitly uh, aimed at energizing a slice of their base, uh, obviously progressives, but African-Americans. And, and it, has, it has the potential to backfire by turning off moderate independent voters. And so, um, and, and it seems like initially that's what's been happening, this idea that somehow they're going to convince, you know, everyone, all these moderate voters that it's 1965 and, you know, it's... Yeah, people don't believe as, that. They do not believe South. that. It's just they right. look around, it, they it, say it, that that has no resemblance to... America today. I don't know what they're talking about. And this actually, it's a perfect transition into more findings and data points from the CBS News survey that I just referenced. Brand new survey, brand new national poll out yesterday. And it's rough. I mean, you know, Biden's at 56% disapproval in that poll. Rough if you're a Democrat, great if you're a Republican. (laughs) I found that only 26% of Americans say things are going well in the country. 26%. That is a really bad right track wrong track type of number they asked about the economy biden is at 38 percent approved 62 percent disapprove on the economy on inflation he's at 30 70 he's 40 points underwater on the issue that people are dealing with and seeing every single day and yet he's you know down in georgia screaming about bull connor and all this you know crazy stuff we need the democrats to totally take over our elections and eliminate photo photo id and all this stuff and what cbs found they asked people what they think of biden and one of the refrains and one of the recurring uh, elements of this poll and and what people are saying to the pollster is he is not in touch with what our priorities are he is not doing the things that we care about he doesn't care about the issues that we care about and that's i think a, a huge indictment of the political strategy of the white house it is really cutting at one of the few remaining positive things that Biden has going for him, which is like empathy and relating to people. People are saying he's not relating to the stuff that I actually care about. And then they ask people just sort of this free association thing. How does the uh, the presidency of Joe Biden make you feel? And they give a few options. 
and 50% of people say they feel frustrated. 49% say they feel disappointed. 40% say they're nervous. Then you start getting into some of the more positive words like calm and satisfied, and that's 25%. All right, this guy sold himself. We need to calm things down. I'm the guy to do it. Let's do some more normal stuff. Let's come together and just chill out. That was extremely appealing to a lot of people, Tom. I think it's why he won in large measure. And here we are a year into his presidency, and 25% of the country say they feel calm with him at the helm. That's, that's a real problem for him. It is a problem. And, you know, I tweeted about these numbers over the weekend and got into some back and forth with some folks on Twitter who were saying, you know, that the economy is actually pretty good. And, you know, Biden has been focused on the economy. That's what Build Back Better is all about, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Here's the problem. And, and the other argument was, well, just, you know, focusing more on the economy isn't going to make people feel better about it. And, and there's not a lot he can do, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is that perception is reality. So whatever the White House thinks they've been doing, Mm-hmm. is not how that's translated to the American people. The American people think that their eye is not on the ball. And so whether they think that's true or not, they have to respond to it. And the way that they could respond to that would be to, you know, appoint an inflation czar or a task force on inflation, give the American people some sense that they are actively working every single day to tackle the issue that the American people are most concerned about. And they're not doing that and as a result, you do, you have this disconnect between what the public sees, what, what the public cares about and what the public sees the administration caring about. It doesn't mean they have to abandon, you know, their entire agenda or they can't talk about voting rights or whatever. They just have to get those priorities in line with where the American people are. And as you mentioned, I mean, for the first two and a half weeks of, of the new year, the administration has been all about voting rights, all about January 6th, all about, you know, saving democracy, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's just not where the American people are. They don't think democracy's in trouble. They don't think that well, you no, know, it's, it's 1965. And so, and so they're paying a political price for that, and they will continue to pay a price for that unless and until they readjust their strategy and their priority. Well, I say, well, build back better, your critics, and the Democrats coming back. Oh, build back better was the economy, and it failed because these people, well, if you look at the polling, the American people don't want build back better. They don't view that as the solution to the problems. In fact, in a lot of cases, they feel like it would make it worse. So Build Back Better is not a good rejoinder if people are worried that he's not paying attention to the issues that matter to them. Folks are looking at the price of everything going up, and that hurts. It's outpacing their wage gains. It's painful, and it's affecting their bottom lines in their pocketbooks. They see shortages at various places, including, including the grocery store. They see a huge spike in cases of the virus over the holidays and nary a test to be found in a lot of places around the country. These are the things that they expect the president to be focused on. And instead, it's, you know, George Wallace and Jefferson Davis and all this crazy hyperbole that isn't going to even translate into anything happening in Washington, D.C. And then they look around like, you know, why do people feel like we're not prioritizing what they care about, and they're out of touch. I mean, that it's like the ultimate, it's the ultimate confirmation that they're out of touch. That they can't really even understand why people think they are, and it's because they are. Tom, we got to leave it there for now, but we will have you back. A lot of data, I'm sure, to crunch in the coming months ahead of this midterm election. I mean, it's still a long way to go. A lot can change right now in early 2022. 
Uh, the writing would be on the wall for a very good night for the Republicans, a very bad night for the Democrats. We'll see if those trajectories continue. Tom Bevan, Real Clear Politics co-founder. Always appreciate it, Tom. Thank you. Thanks, Guy. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Appreciate you being here. Well, I saw this clip on social media today, and it sort of stopped me cold. It is a guy who is the chair of Virgin Galactic, which is an offshoot of, I guess, the the Virgin Company. He runs some sort of uh, tech group that they say is about helping people find their potential and you know, helping the world or whatever. He is also one of the minority owners, like a, a not a full owner, but a partial owner of the Golden State Warriors of the NBA. That's the San Francisco-based franchise where they've got uh, that left-wing coach, Steve Kerr, who's always out there preening about social justice stuff and left-wing stuff, but not always, right? Obviously, if it doesn't fit the narrative or might hurt the uh, the bottom line. He's typically pretty quiet about that stuff. But on the approved lefty talking points, he he wants everyone to know uh, he's on the good side, right? He's he's a lib. But that's the uh, that's the Golden State Warriors, and one of their owners is a man whose name I am about to butcher, Chamath Palatia. It's a very long last name, and I got it very wrong. Palahapatia, something like that. Uh, And this gentleman was on a podcast, and the issue of the Chinese Communist Party, human rights abuses, and the genocide against the Uyghur people came up. And we all know some of the context here with the NBA. We know how the NBA and many other organizations turn a total blind eye. They say nothing, right? They, They talk a lot about social justice and equity and all of these buzzwords at home where they feel like it's safe and beneficial and even profitable for them to do it. But when it comes to any possibility of risking their money and their ability to make money in a huge market like communist China, they just grow strangely silent and muted. And where I almost have to give credit to this guy, this co-owner of the Warriors, is he didn't make any pretenses about mumbling a few nonsense words and moving on. He just said the thing out loud. All right, there's genocide. I don't care. That's what he said. He said, I don't care about what's happening to the Uyghurs in China. He just straight up said it, cut 30. Yeah, nobody cares about what's happening to the Uyghurs, okay? You you bring it up because you really what? care. And I think what that's nice that you cares? care. The rest of us don't care. I'm just well, telling you a very care? hard. Wait, wait, I'm you're telling you, you very, personally don't care. I'm telling you a very hard, ugly truth. Okay, of all the things that I care about, yes, it is below my line. Okay, oh, of all the things that I care about, it is below my line. So he's saying what the NBA says through their actions, right? They cower before communist China because there's a lot of money for them to make there, and if that means not supporting democracy. Oh, we're all about democracy under threat in America. They all buy into this crap. That isn't true. Democracy is actually being stamped out in Hong Kong 
But if you take the side of Hong Kong and democracy, you get ostracized and bullied, and LeBron James wants you fired or punished in some way. Here's an actual genocide happening. State Department, both administrations, the last two administrations say it's a genocide. Systemic rape, there are concentration camps, slave labor camps, uh, re-education facilities, boxcars. It is deeply evil. And this guy's just saying, you know what, no one cares. You might say that you care, but the rest of us don't care. Subtext, there's a lot of money to make there. Shut up, we don't care. Stop being weird about this. That's what the NBA believes. No one will actually say it except for this guy. I wonder if he has any Muslim employees, how they might feel. Their boss saying very publicly that he does not care about an anti-Muslim genocide happening in the world. Doesn't care. Remember Donald Sterling from the Clippers? He got drummed out of the NBA for some private comments in his own house. I'm not saying this guy should be canceled, but I wonder what the standards are here. Can someone help me with that? You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Still to come, Corey DeAngelis later this hour. Juan Williams in the next hour. Juan will be talking about Martin Luther King Jr. on MLK Day. Hope you'll stay tuned for that. In the meantime, I want to talk about, once again, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida. We addressed last Friday the attacks that he got incoming from Gavin Newsom, sort of the sleazy governor of California. And he was saying, oh, if we did it the Ron DeSantis way, we'd have 40,000 more dead Californians. I don't take any inspiration from that governor. This is right-wing crazy town over there. And I ran through some of the numbers and the comparisons on not just COVID stuff and excess deaths, but other things like education, like taxes, like the economy, jobs, unemployment, the list goes on. I think a California versus Florida referendum nationally would be a very illustrative and instructive debate. I guess Gavin Newsom thinks it might benefit him if he wants to run for president, which I think he wants to in 2024, and he's looking at threats out there. He sees DeSantis as a threat, so he's attacking And I think DeSantis would relish that conversation when it's not just a Democratic politician spouting some talking points and it's actually a back and forth like, okay, let's let's do a compare and contrast. Let's see how that goes for California. I think the American people would pick Florida over California, maybe not overwhelmingly, but decisively. And I did a whole segment on that on Friday. If you want to read some of my more specific arguments with links When I show my work and that sort of thing, I have a post today at townhall.com about it on the tip sheet. You can check that out on Newsom versus DeSantis. So that's out from California, those uh, rhetorical missiles getting lobbed across the country. And then in Florida itself, this is a psychotic thing. There's a woman called Nikki Freed, who I guess is technically the agriculture commissioner in Florida. She's the only statewide Democrat left in Florida. And she has taken it upon herself to be like a one-woman resistance crew against DeSantis. And there's not a single conspiracy theory or crazy thing that she won't latch onto, including all that Rebecca Jones stuff and all the lies and the data that she was big on that. She has no judgment at all. She's this sort of flailing, desperate person, but she's their front runner to challenge DeSantis this year for governor. It's like her and Charlie Crist. What a crew. 
And recently she gave an interview. She was being asked about her decision recently to start referring to uh, DeSantis as an authoritarian dictator. And a journalist was like, well, like, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, you know, I'm a student of history. And I followed the rise of Hitler. And this is what I see. And the journalist said, are you comparing DeSantis to Hitler? And her response was, in a lot of ways, yes. I have studied Hitler and how he got to power, you know, wanting his own militia. So, look, uh, narrator, she's not a student of history. She has not truly studied Hitler because if she did, she would be absolutely embarrassed comparing any American politician on our scene to what that man did. But she felt it was the right decision to say that in a lot of ways DeSantis reminds her of Hitler. And the first example she gives is wanting his own militia, which is a completely made-up lie. DeSantis wants this, like, a citizen corps that, like, 20 other states have, including a bunch of blue states. I believe California has one. And even some of the blue checkmark people were like, well, let's uh, tap the brakes on the whole... uh, militia thing that that's not what's happening here this is a very common non-alarming thing the whole point of this group is to help with like disaster relief after hurricanes but leave it to people like the leading florida democrat to say that this is really pretty hitler-esque that's what nikki freed had to say and we know about the lies that are told constantly in the smears about desantis On everything. It's like no matter what he does, they come after him. And we spent a fair amount of time on this show correcting the record. Because it's important for the truth to prevail. If you want to beat Ron DeSantis, do it on the merits. Don't do it by making stuff up. So we try to level the playing field here. The reason I say all of those things, and I talk about Gavin Newsom, I talk about this crank, Nikki Freed, is Ron DeSantis is taking some more incoming fire but this time it's not from a democrat it's not from a liberal journo it is from donald trump trump reportedly and i've heard this independently and then axios reported as well trump these days is trashing ron DeSantis in private conversations and apparently what trump says and again i have friends sort of connected to Trump world who say, yeah, he's, he's starting to say stuff about Ron behind the scenes. He's saying that he's very dull, has a bad personality, he's an ingrate, he has no realistic chance of uh, winning the presidency. He's saying, you know, he's just a, sort of this boring guy with no charisma, is what Trump's saying. And what he's also mad about, quote, is that Ron DeSantis won't say he won't run in 2024. Trump views this as disloyal, right? Trump believes that every Republican in America serves at the pleasure of Donald Trump. And if Ron DeSantis, who's running for re-election in Florida, it's a very important thing that he win down there in Florida, given what he has done with that state and prevented for that state, he's done a very good job. He is public enemy in some ways number one from the left. He's fighting them efficiently. He's governing As a strong conservative, he's got good arguments at his fingertips. He mixes it up. He is aggressive in defending himself and making his case to voters. 
and Trump wants some sort of loyalty pledge that he wouldn't dream of running in 2024 if Donald Trump wants to run again. And that's not how this should work. If Ron DeSantis wins re-election, he would be a pretty attractive candidate to run for president. And I understand if Trump wants to run too, they can go at it and they can go back and forth. That's fine. For Trump to be undermining the guy and attacking the guy sort of personally already before even the re-election campaign in Florida, it's not a good look for Trump. I'll have more to say about this in the coming days. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us now is Corey DeAngelis, Director of School Choice at the Reason Foundation, a free market think tank online at reason.org, also a Ph.D. researcher, and he's the tip of the spear on the battle for school choice. And as we've talked about with him on the air multiple times over the pandemic, it has been really a seminal period in our history on this issue in particular, with more people waking up to what the status quo was and the entrenched interests that have been holding back progress. And, Corey, it's good to have you back here. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Let's start with what's playing out in Virginia. We open with this on the show today with Governor Yunkin being sworn into office and immediately taking a few different steps on education and the hysteria that was visited upon him and surrounded these executive orders was predictable, but still high decibel. We're seeing the media doing their thing. We're seeing elected Democrats attacking him. We're seeing school districts and counties refusing to comply with his decisions that he has made. What is your assessment of these first you know, roughly 48 hours of the Yunkin administration and the reaction to it? Yeah, it looks like he's uh, asserting his his uh, campaign promises and uh, promoting parental rights and education. The one that stood out to me was that he said that he's going to allow all families to choose whether to send their kids to school in masks each day. Uh, that should be a decision up, that's up to the parents. But as you said, look, some of these school districts are saying they're not going to listen and they're still they're going to force all kids to wear masks anyway. My take on it is that Yunkin should respond by saying, okay, you want to play that game? Well, then we're going to allow all families to take their children's education dollars elsewhere. Let them vote with their feet to a school that doesn't have a mask mandate. And similarly, if you're in a district that does have a mask mandate um, or doesn't have one and you would like one, maybe you should be able to take your children's education dollars to a school that does have one. Uh, I think that's the best move. We saw this play out in Arizona, for example. Governor Doug Ducey um, had a similar uh, ban on mask mandates in the public schools, allowing families to choose. Similarly, some big school districts said, oh, no, we're not going to listen to your executive order. And then Ducey announced the program shortly after to uh, allow families to have school choice. So I think that would be an ultimate power move by Yunkin. And he doesn't, from what I can tell, he doesn't need the legislature to do so. The way that Ducey did it in Arizona is that he used American Rescue Plan funding to allow families to take those education dollars to a private school. Youngkin should do the same thing. Yeah, and it comes back to this idea of choice, where you're giving parents the choice about whether or not, based on the data, based on their kids' needs, whether masks in school are a good idea. Now, I mean, I would make an argument based on the data that they are not justifiable, forcing kids to be wearing these masks for eight hours a day. But if you're a parent who feels very strongly 
about masking, you can do that. You can have your kid in three masks if you want. <laughs> the option here is parents get to choose. And if a parent doesn't want their kid in a mask anymore in Virginia, they don't have to. But there's, again, people deciding that they're going to resist. We saw it, as you mentioned, in Arizona. We've seen it definitely in Florida as well. <laughs> And ultimately, when it comes down to the overall concept of school choice, there are plenty of parents who are well-to-do, who make you know more than a certain dollar amount. There's an income threshold here where if they get fed up enough with their school or their school district or their local teachers' union, if you're in Chicago, for example, and the school union of these teachers out in Chicago once again decide to shut down classes for the better part of a week for no good reason, people of a certain amount of wealth can say, all right, that's it, I've had enough. Billy and Katie, you're done. We're moving you to a private school, and they have the means to do it. There are other families who do not have the means to do it. They are taxpayers. Those taxes fund the government schools, and those kids are stuck in those government schools. And their parents, without the financial wherewithal to put them elsewhere, they are basically imprisoned by the whims and the political decisions of teachers' unions and other sort of government education special interests. And that seems like a fundamental inequity, to borrow a phrase that they like on the other side so much, that can be corrected. They just don't seem to want to correct it because the special interests are on their side. Yeah, and what's interesting is I actually read about this in the Wall Street Journal a few months back where we did some polling finding that if you made the uh, voucher or the school choice idea contingent upon your school not mandating masks, Democrats were overwhelmingly in favor of the idea. Over 80 percent of respondents nationwide supported that idea. So my takeaway is that everybody wants school choice, but they want it for different reasons. But I think the best way forward is for all of us to understand that we're just going to disagree on on policies, right? I mean, we've seen so many issues bubble up in the past two years now when it comes to K-12 education. We've seen battles when it comes to in-person versus remote, CRT versus no CRT, and other curricular battles. We've seen COVID mitigation uh, battles that are still unfolding in Virginia right now over the mask mandates uh, for for all kids or not. Well, there are schools that are closed right now. I, I saw that there were Maryland schools that were closed. We had Chicago, as I mentioned, last week and the week before that. There are closed schools currently for reasons that are scientifically indefensible. I mean, this is an active fight. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a power issue, right? I mean, we don't see this anywhere else in society. The private schools were able to figure it out from the get-go. Daycares were able to figure it out in person. Grocery store workers didn't go flooding into the streets, uh, protesting, having to go back to work in person. And I think the difference there was one of incentives that the, the public schools get your money regardless of whether they open their doors for business. And in fact, it's even worse than that. The Chicago teachers unions doing this essentially, they were doing this essentially two years into this after all the data suggesting that schools could reopen safely and that the school closures hurt kids in so many ways. It was essentially like the hostage takers. Uh, received ransom payments and then tried to keep the hostages. They already re- the Chicago public schools received two point eight billion dollars in supposed COVID relief funding since April of, since March of twenty twenty, which turned out to be about eighty five hundred dollars per kid. It's just they yeah. had so much money, but they they realized that they could keep the gravy train going by closing the schools. They could they could 
participate in this hostage-taking. And the only way out of this never-ending cycle, in my view, is to give the money directly to the families. They spend over $27,000 per student per year in Chicago. Average private school tuition is less than half of that, only about $11,000 per year. That would allow more families have access to alternatives, particularly the ones who can't afford to do so right now. Yeah, and when there's choice and competition, then that tends to get the attention of erstwhile monopolies. It's like, oh, I can't just win by default anymore. Maybe we need to be more responsive to parents and students and their needs. That would be the goal. That would be one of the great advantages of yeah, school totally. choice. Yeah, I mean, this to improve public a lot schools. of these. This could fix a lot of these one-size-fits-all issues, including the CRT debate. I mean, I don't have a, a stance on whether you, what type of curriculum you should have in the public school, but if it's politically divisive and it turns a lot of families off no matter what the topic is, if you allow families to vote with their feet, well, then the public schools will start to think a little bit about what they focus on, and perhaps they'll be more likely to focus well, on the Well, except sometimes you see that these schools and these officials and these unions actively disdain families and parents. They have contempt for them. Tell us, Corey, briefly about this uh, amazing Facebook post that was <laughs> published and then disappeared by the Democratic Party of Michigan in these last couple of days. Yeah, the Michigan Democratic Party didn't learn from the Virginia story where, you know, Terry McAuliffe said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach, which totally backfired for his campaign. I, I thought everybody would learn by now. But the Michigan Democratic Party a couple of days ago put out a Facebook post from, from their verified account, essentially saying that, you know, um, if you don't like what's going on in your public school, you can just you can just pay for a private school, which is totally elitist right there, that only, only, only um, advantaged people should have school choice. But then they also uh, had a post pretty much saying that it takes a village. Um, uh, and it, it was just totally uh, against parental involvement in education. Right, and it's not it, up to parents. Like it's, it's, our, it's our society that raises these kids, and it's about our yeah. standards, not your standards. It was just this scolding message to parents, and then that got memory hold pretty quickly. <laughs> Yes, and then just an hour ago today, um, they're, they're backpedaling. I mean, they, they let the mask slip, and then they got some bad reaction to it, obviously, and then they did a new post. They said, oh, we deleted the post, and, well, you know, um, the second sentence says, quote, parents need to have a say in their ch children's education, end of story. This post does not reflect the views of Michigan Democrats, da-da-da-da-da. They posted. I mean, Look, it's it, obvious this is, what happened. Yep, yep, they, they let us know how they really feel. It couldn't be any more obvious. And I think there were probably some consultants and pollsters and officials in the party saying, we can't have that. We just lost because of that. And so they had to say, oh, wait, never mind. That's not what we meant. We meant the opposite thing. And I don't think anyone's buying it. And I hope Michigan voters and Michigan parents remember and remember well in November. Corey DeAngelis, we've got to leave it there for now. An ongoing fight in this country, an ongoing conversation. He's the director of school choice at the Reason Foundation. Corey, appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. Juan Williams on the life and times and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That's straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. 
It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Thank you for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time for the program. And the podcast is always available and always free of charge on demand at GuyBensonShow.com. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage is here in America. It is growing. It is popular. It is delicious. And they're about to expand in a huge way. I did enjoy some over the weekend. A little bit of indulgence there. You can find out where it's sold near you. You can order online, thelongdrink.com. Thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Thank you. And as we begin today's final hour of the program, on this MLK Day, we are joined by Juan Williams, Fox News analyst, columnist for The Hill, author of multiple books, including most recently, What the Hell Do You Have to Lose? And Juan, it's good to have you back. My pleasure. Good to be with you, Guy. Happy King Day. Thank you. I want to talk about Dr. King, and I know that you are a student of history. You, in particular, are a student of the civil rights movement and black history in America. You have more insight into these issues and this topic than many. And it's always good to hear from someone and to be educated by someone who has really looked at this stuff very carefully over the course of a lifetime. I want to talk about Dr. King in a few different ways in this on this day that, of course, honors him and his memory. We often look back on King, on his legacy and that sort of thing, and that's fine. We're going to do that. But if you can just speak to his significance contemporaneously, when he was a civil rights leader, what his impact was in the moment, not looking back, but how he was greeted, how he was treated, why he was effective, why those who tried to sideline him, denigrate him, imprison him, ultimately failed. Talk about the man as he was engaged actively in his activism and his battle for civil rights. Well, you know, that's a fantastic question. I've never heard it, and I must say I think you are on target, Guy, because to me, in this moment, where so much of the information that we have comes through social media and comes directly to people uh, in terms of their relationship to a voice or a personality, uh, I think King was at the cutting edge of this. Remember, TV is coming into its own in that time. So it's really an opportunity for Americans to see the civil rights movement as a drama unfold in real time on their TV sets in a way they didn't experience World War II in that way. They didn't experience anything to do uh, with the Depression in that way. But this comes home and largely around the personality of Dr. Martin Luther King. I, I also wrote a, I, I wrote Eyes on the Prize, America's Civil Rights Years, 1954 to 1965, a book that came out in the late 80s, still sells, and it's unbelievable. But I also wrote a book called Thurgood Marshall, American Revolutionary. And Jet Magazine in the late 50s asked people, who's America's top civil rights leader? The answer came back, among black people, Thurgood Marshall. But for most of America, the answer was Dr. King. Why? Because Dr. King was giving speeches with power. He was trained not only as a, uh, you know, a, a, a reverend, a, a, an orator in that sense, he was trained as someone who could reference the Bible and the experience people had in church and therefore make it more real to black and white people, Christians in this country, in terms of a Christian 
movement. So here we have personality. He's using language that, and, and analogies and similes that people are familiar with, and he's bringing it home with real power, and it comes into your home on a regular basis. Oh, Dr. King is marching somewhere. Doctor, What's Dr. King up to now? He was much loved and much hated, but he was a driving persona in terms of news in a way that I don't think we've seen until this current epoch in terms of social media's power. So I thought your question was terrific. I appreciate that, and I'm actually really interested in that answer because I would imagine, look, he was obviously a crusader, a crusader for good and to fight against truly systemic, ingrained racism. And in order to be effective, as he was, there were probably some decisions, some strategic and tactical decisions that he had to make about what would work and what wouldn't what would engage and what would alienate. And even if you feel like you are 100% in the right and your cause is righteous and his cause was righteous and he was in the right, when you're looking around and looking at the society in which you live and you're trying to operate as an activist, there are certain constraints as well if you want to be someone who actually moves the needle or moves the needle a lot, which he did. I wonder if you have insight into some of those choices, because, of course, some of it was just God-given natural talent. The man could speak. He was captivating, right? The same exact words delivered by someone who was much drier with a different sort of voice, who made different choices, would not have had the same impact. I mean, part of that was just, you know, what he was born with. But some of it was also a series of choices and conscious decisions made as I said, for strategic reasons along the way. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. Sure. And this is, again, so revealing in that, you know, people, you just said it too, people think, you know, he had these natural abilities, undeniably so, great speaker, captivating to use your language, guy. But, you know, when he starts out, this is a guy that starts out at a church in Montgomery, Alabama. And remember, his father is from Atlanta, Georgia, and, you know, famously the minister of a church in Atlanta, Georgia. Why is Dr. King all the way in Montgomery? Well, the answer is he couldn't get a job anywhere else, and he gets this job, and people are, even in the church on the vestry, are very suspect of him. He's too young. He's like 25 years old. And they think that he's gotten the job because of his father's name and his father's reputation. Uh, The guy who had been there before... Uh, had been put out because he was too much of a civil rights activist, and people thought, you know what, he's offensive. We don't need all that trouble, all that. We just want God's word in this pulpit. We don't need civil rights activism. So that man was pushed out, and they get this young guy, but then people think he just doesn't have the experience. He doesn't know what he's doing. And then comes, of course, events like the Montgomery bus boycott, with Rosa Parks so famously. And again, people might think, oh, well, Dr. King was the leader. Well, actually, Dr. King was slow to get involved, and it was really up to people who were involved with things like the uh, Pullman Car Porters Union, uh, the NAACP. Is it because of his parishioners? He was slow at first because he didn't want to repeat the problem that had pushed his predecessor out. That's interesting. Correct. And and you've got to understand that the black middle class in Montgomery, Alabama, was not given to immediately joining in to some protest movement. They're trying to just lead their lives and do the best they can with their status in that society. So what changed that, and what changed him? 
Well, I think a couple of things. One is pressure then from people who were activists uh, who said, you know, Dr. King, we're having a meeting in your church on Saturday night, and we've we've arranged to have now a crowd of 300 people, and if you're not there, uh, don't worry about it. He's like, wait a second, my church is now leaving me. And so what you get is he comes into the church, he comes into the meeting, and now he's the leader of the Montgomery bus boycott. And people think, oh, it was him all along. Well, actually, there is an organizing force that drew him in, and now is taking advantage of his ability as a speaker, as a personality, uh, and someone who the press will pay attention to. I mentioned earlier the dawn of television during that 50s, 60s era uh, as a news delivery mechanism. But you've you got to understand, it's also newspapers didn't cover things to do with civil rights and black people. Major American newspapers, New York Times, Washington Post, Atlanta Constitution, didn't cover that at the time. Now, though, with King, all of a sudden, the white reporters and the white papers are covering King because he's such a personality. I mean, his house gets bombed, his life is threatened, uh, he's arrested with Ralph Abernathy, famous pictures, you know. And these things now, he's become this captivating persona. He even and, used and his is, arrest and brief, relatively brief imprisonment to further the cause as well, of course, by writing prolifically behind bars. And, and that... Yeah, famously, the letter from a Birmingham jail in another circumstance. Yeah. So let's fast forward then, Juan. He's now not just dipping his toe into this form of activism. He is the national leader on this front. And, of course, his life is cut short horrifically and tragically by an assassin. What had he achieved already by the time he was killed? And what did his murder do in terms of impacting the American psyche vis-a-vis the goals that he was pursuing during his life? So... Just to pick up on the theme of your first set of questions, Guy, remember the great speech at the March on Washington on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, I think to this day, remains sort of a moment in all American history when he speaks about, you know, the children of slaves and the children of slave masters together, judging people on the basis of the content of their character, not the color of their skin. This stuff just comes, I think, to all American minds. It's like, yeah, that's part of our legacy. That's who we are. That's part of our great American story. And that's, that's an unbelievable accomplishment. And again, remember... I think it's guys, one of the few speeches in the history of the country that most Americans can recognize or at least quote briefly. There aren't many. Correct. Maybe, that's right. Maybe five or ten total. I agree. And here's the thing. Remember that that speech is televised live. And so it's, 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 it's breaking ground in a way that maybe today we don't think back, but yeah, the Americans saw it on TV and went, holy smokes, and look at the size of that crowd. Now, the crowd, about 200,000 people at most, but people today would think it was like the size of a mega march, but no, it wasn't, but it, it crowded that area around the reflecting pool in the, the monument, uh, the Lincoln Memorial, and here's the other part of it. President Kennedy didn't want those people there and didn't want the march to take place and didn't want King to speak. But afterwards, he's so moved that he invites them over to the White House. So when you ask me about, you know, what he accomplished in that moment, you start to see the political structure now responding to the fact of his immense persona and voice 
And it's responding in terms, by the way, of Christian appeal that says we're all God's children. So it's not speaking to, oh, I'm against segregation, or I'm standing up for black rights. It's saying, I'm standing here as a minister speaking to you about our common faith, our common experience as American Christians, and how we should see each other as brothers. This is, this to me, resonates to this moment, you know, that we always have those who would say, you know, oh, that's a, an issue, you're trying to, you know, affirmative action is supposed to move blacks ahead, but is it at a cost to whites? There's always a divide, as opposed to saying, wait a minute, uh, we're trying to heal something. And King, took, King gained great status in American life. And I think it is true to this moment as I speak to Guy Benson in saying, wait a minute, we're on a common journey. There's something that about the American experience that you can't extract white America from it. You can't extract black America, immigrant America. We're on a common journey. It's better if we stand together than fall apart. Amen. Well said. It's Juan Williams here on The Guy Benson Show. It's MLK Day in the USA. More on Dr. King and his legacy with Juan when we return. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. We're back. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show along with Juan Williams. We're talking about Dr. Martin Luther King and the movement that he led and the progress that he was achieving. And ultimately, he was martyred, right, for the cause. And I think that only cemented his position in society, not just at the time, but for many years and decades to come because of what he was building and the progress he was striving to make and was making, and to have the forces against him kill him. Oh, my God. Uh, they, that's, you know, they, that's, called, that's called martyrdom. Yep. They silenced him, but they didn't really, did they? Well, no. I mean, in fact, they may have enlarged him. Exactly. Uh, and they may have given him microphones and pulpits for all eternity, because... Suddenly, in much the way that, you know, attempts on his life, I mean, you know, I, I spoke to you about his house in Montgomery being bombed, but then there were, I mean, even there was a black woman who tried to kill him with a knife in Harlem in the late 50s. And then, you know, there's always the constant threat. And remember, Hoover investigated. There's all this drama around King. I mean, you know, it's, it's like this man's life is in danger and everybody knows it. But to this moment now, as the slain martyr, he remains on a mountaintop. And I say that knowing the power of that image from the 63 speech and all that. I just think that he now is someone who gave his life to a cause. And in terms of black America, you think of people like Malcolm X, uh, and you say to yourself, I, I think they're larger in death in many ways than they were in life. And with Dr. King, just go back and look at the poll numbers. He was a much despised guy by critics at the time who saw him as self-serving, self-aggrandizing, you know, even among other black people and other black organizations. Why is King getting all this money and attention? Right. Jealousy, is it counterproductive, all that stuff. But ultimately, he was on the march. He was bringing Americans slowly but surely with him. And we have come a very long way, Juan. 
and we have these conversations about race from time to time on this show, and we disagree from time to time on this show on matters regarding race, but not the way that we used to disagree in in really an evil and shameful way in terms of the policies that were in place in this country for so long. And that is a big reason why there's a whole holiday named after him, why we commemorate his life and that I have a dream speech every year and we talk about it and we think about it because of the massive footprint he leaves on American society and law. I mean, he was not a lawyer. He was a preacher, but he really helped usher in a new era of law and equality. And I wonder if you would say, Juan, to the audience looking back, if that is Dr. King's greatest legacy. Without a doubt. That's why I said to you, you know, when after the the march on Washington and the great speech from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, uh, President Kennedy invites him in. And, of course, what you see is then subsequently passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, passage of the 1965 uh, Voting Rights Act. Uh, and even after he's assassinated, then you're going forward towards, you know, fair housing. So much. Th- these things came out of King's life and efforts and marches and protests and voice. And, and I, again, just wanted to underline, and I think so much of it in terms of the power comes from this Christian belief that King, as a minister, was speaking to all of us. He, you know, I mean, you know, Billy Graham was a fan of Dr. King. Juan Williams, Fox News analyst, columnist at The Hill, author of multiple books. He's plugged a few of them here, and I encourage you to read them because they apply to some of the lessons that we're talking about of history, American history, that we pause and reflect upon today, Martin Luther King Day in the United States of America. Juan, we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. It's The Guy Benson Show, and we will be back. Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier today in the program, we caught up with Kimberly Strassel of the Wall Street Journal, Fox News contributor, wide-ranging conversation with Kim. Here's part of it. I want to start with this. Your book that I just referenced is called Resistance at All Costs, and that's what we're already seeing from Democrats in blue counties in Virginia. Governor Yunkin has just been governor for you know a day and a half, basically, at this point. He's following through on campaign promises, and already you have jurisdictions saying we're not going to comply. We're not going to listen to your executive orders. We're going to keep forcing kids to wear masks in schools, all of them, no matter what the parents say. And a few things strike me about that. I feel like you've got sort of the rule of law at stake. You've got parental rights at stake. You've got data-driven public policy at stake. You've got the well-being of children at stake, and you've got lefties from Jen Psaki all the way down taking the other side in this fight in the name of science, even though it's absolutely not supported by the science. And I can't help but recognize and observe that a lot of the people who are absolutely positively sure that it is wrong and dangerous and deadly for Republican governors to give parents a choice on this matter, a lot of those same people, it's almost a perfect circle, the Venn diagram, are the same folks who were catastrophically wrong when it came to science and the well-being of children on school closures for a year. And it's like they want all of us to just forget how terribly and harmfully wrong they were on that and go along with their new 
sort of area for hysteria. And I just wonder what your thoughts are as we're seeing this really big skirmish breaking out on day one, now day two of the Yunkin governorship. Yeah, you know, my basic rule of thumb these days, Guy, is that whatever Democrats are accusing Republicans of doing, it's what they're actually doing themselves. And as you just said, you know, for five years, we got all of these uh, warnings and hysteria about Donald Trump and his administration and how, you know, he was a tyrant and a budding dictator and destroying standards and the rule of law. And yet what we really have are Democrats who, and this goes to your point, they take this moralistic approach where they argue that their position is somehow superior and that because they're fighting on the side of angels, that they're justified in doing whatever they want to do, uh, even if that is, as you say, defying uh, the rule of law, um, defying executive orders that the new governor is putting out. Um, and it's Defying a, a evidence? Defying data? Defying evidence. Right, right. And defying data. I mean, this is the thing is we just went through two years of everybody losing all of their confidence in the so-called experts with their varying guidance and they're, they're being flat out wrong on so many things. And yet people are still defaulting to that, to the Democratic elite. They will default to it whenever they uh, want to cherry pick data and, and so that they can put their agenda in place or simply make everything a political fight which is what they have also done to transition to one of your most recent pieces when it comes to so-called voting rights. We saw the speech last week from President Biden. It was extremely ugly down in Georgia. We're seeing polling today that he's just totally out of touch with the American people. His numbers are terrible. This is not what people want him to be focused on. They don't believe that there's a voting rights crisis in the country because there is not a voting rights crisis in the country. Going back to an expanded voting rights regime that is just slightly less expansive than the emergency pandemic protocols is not voter suppression. And yet the president said, if you disagree with that, then you're Bull Connor incarnate. Uh, the, the weekend was spent on social media and on MSNBC in these places dragging Democratic senators like Cinema and Manchin as, as racist, you know, racist segregationists and, and all the nonsense. Biden has sort of tried to walk it back a little bit in private comments uh, with senators and the White House. Oh, he wasn't trying to mean it personally when he was making those uh, horrible comparisons. My full interview with Kim Strassel, the entire show in its entirety, every day available on the podcast. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcast. Lots of options there. When we come back, it's the first home stretch of the new week. Producer Christine did, in fact, pay money to go to a psychic. What did she learn from this psychic? We'll ask her next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch, Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free. So over the weekend, producer Christine was actually quite busy. She was out and about. She was sending the team photographs of other people around her enjoying some adult beverages while she is still in the throes of dry January. And Quiet Wyatt had sent us a story about how mocktails, so alcohol-free drinks that sort of mimic alcoholic beverages in some ways, they are all the rage. It's a big social and societal trend. 
And Christine, you said that you tried to order a mocktail and they looked at you like you were crazy. Meanwhile, Bobby's having a drink. I was texting you a photo of a cocktail. Your mother was sending you, I guess, photos of booze. This must be a difficult time for you. Uh, That was my mother-in-law. Judgy Joyce does not drink. But, yes, uh, my mother-in-law was sending me pictures of uh, Cosmos because that's, like, our favorite drink together. Wow, you fell far, far from the tree on that one. (laughs) Oh, he's talking about my mom? Yeah. But go on. (laughs) Yes. No, uh, her claim to fame is she's never tasted a beer. Doesn't even, never had a sip of a beer. Wow. Yes. I've tried to get her to drink. Sometimes I'll pour a little champagne or a little Prosecco or wine, and she'll look at it. She holds the glass, but she won't really drink it. Interesting. So, so it was it was yeah. Bobby's mother. This is probably the way that she gets back at you, by the way, because on the home stretch last week, we were talking about how you, at the drop of a hat, call up your mother-in-law constantly. Like when you have an issue or a question or you're frustrated with Bobby, you like call his mother to tell on yeah. him. And I was saying, yeah. I'm sure she, I'm sure she loves that. I think her way of retaliating for all of this stuff that you put her through is knowing that you're trying to do Dry January. She's sending you text messages of booze. Yes, yes, she is. And sometimes she, because uh, her wine night, her wine time usually starts around five o'clock, um, and then she's usually done by six, six thirty. So sometimes she'll call me during wine time, and I know, I know, she's sipping on a red wine. I just know it. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, so Bobby and I, for the first, I hadn't really been out of the house in weeks. So for the first time, Bobby and I went to a restaurant, and the restaurant was just packed. So, so you're feeling we good? Did you, did you test negative, or were you past the isolation yeah, dates? Yeah, I finally, I finally tested negative. Actually, hey, all right, there today. we go. Yep, yep, and I went to the doctor today, and he did a whole bunch of blood work, and he said my lungs sound good. So we are on the up and up. So Bobby and I went to a restaurant. The restaurant was packed, so we sat at the bar, which I knew was going to be challenging for me <laughs> to actually sit at a bar. And I asked the bartender, I said, what sort of mocktails or non-alcoholic drinks do you have? And she looked at me and she said, do you mean like a Coca-Cola or like a soda? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm doing dry January. And she goes, what's that? And I said, well, you don't drink in January. And she goes, oh, uh, she had she had no clue what I was She'd talking. She never about. heard of that. Everyone knows nope. about that. No, she was an older lady, so maybe I, I, I maybe that's just not something she had heard of. Uh, there was no mocktails. She didn't even know what to. She goes like, "I have sour mix. I guess I can do something with that." And at that point, I just said, "Forget it." Uh, so I had two Coca Colas while my husband enjoyed his Manhattan martinis. And let me tell you something. That was brutal. It was really, really brutal. He should have ordered Cosmos just to troll you. (laughs) Big, bright Cosmos, just gulping them down. He was very sweet at one point. He goes, listen, I'm going to go to the restroom. I have about a half a martini left here. I'm not going (laughs) to judge you if by the time I get back, that martini is empty. And I said, no, no, no. I said, I will judge right. myself. I made it. Very commitment. admirable. You're, you're still holding off. You're, uh, you know, you're more than halfway through the month. And we also gave you those extra days. Yep. Those, I only those, have one more weekend. Those credited days because you weren't drinking over the Christmas holiday either because you were sick. Mm-mm. And so those days count. 
But you did oh, text us your uh, your dry January lamentations over the weekend, and it was, I believe, the 15th of January, which is halfway through the month, and so I just sent you back those uh, Bon Jovi lyrics. Halfway there, <laughs> living on a prayer for producer Christine yeah. trying to get through this last uh, stretch of days. In the meantime, you spent another element of your weekend, more time, more money, at the psychic. I, yeah. I really think this was um, silly. I will admit I'm judging mm. you for this. You went mm. anyway. I think it was a waste of time and money. And it turned out that you were such a lost cause that the psychic basically <laughs> told you, you need more than my griff. You need <laughs> professional help. This is so embarrassing. She said it several times as she was reading my tarot cards. She said, you've been to therapy? You, I said, yes, yes. She goes, okay. Well, you need to make sure you're still in it. And if you're not, you need to go back to it. Uh, over and over again, she had asked me this or told me this. And she didn't mean, like, keep coming. Well, she did. She does want me to come back to her. I kind of knew this was going to happen. My chakras are blocked, especially um, my main, like, the one in my stomach. So I knew I kind of need a chakra cleansing. I, I have no sort. idea what you're talking about. So you have seven chakras, like senses in your body. They start at the spine and go all the way to the top of your head. Oh, so this and is a made-up thing. This is not a scientific no, or medical no. thing. No, no, no. This is like a real, a real thing. It's. Um, is this medical? Uh, yeah, it's like alternative. Could we know. get Doctor Sapphire on here to talk about when they discuss chakras in medical school, or not so much? Well, yeah. No, because this is more like Eastern, I would say, uh -huh. medicine and Western. But uh, my right. so, so, so this woman is telling you that your chakra is blocked. And let me guess, she can unblock it for you for some money? Yeah, she believes mm -hmm. she didn't see much trauma in my life. But obviously, and I had a feeling about this, too, with my, my past life, is there's something that's just blocking that came over into this life. So there's. I need Come to really. On. No, I, I really believe this. I'm not kidding. I'm not putting you on. I really did. I really actually agreed with her um, about that. I that there is a like, trauma, an unspoken and unknowable trauma yeah, in, in my your past, past life that needs yes. to uh, be addressed to unblock your chakras, and she can do it for what's the uh, what's the bargain basement price that she's going to charge you for your uh, unblockage? Well, I think it would take a couple times, but the first one is two hundred and fifty dollars. Oh, okay. a couple installments of two hundred and fifty bucks. That seems yeah. She she's going to be very upset with me because she did say to keep this reading private and not tell anybody. And my, I told my husband that he goes exactly because she knows they're all every, we're all going to say to you, you can't go back. So she wants you to hold on to that. Well, but she said that I'm someone that shares a lot and I have to stop doing that. So that could be harmful to this show. <laughs> well, you've already, um, you've I already ignored her. Here's the thing. You're ignoring her actively, which I <laughs> encourage you to continue doing because it's ridiculous. But she wants um, you to see professional therapists. Yeah, you could have told her, I, I have a professional therapist. I also have a non-professional, uncompensated therapist who's a, an amateur but very wise. And you could be like, hey, uh, psychic lady, can you tell me who this person is and what relationship I have to him or her? That. Of course no, not, because these are specific no. questions that she can't possibly answer. So it's more vague, mystical stuff. And you're like, oh, yeah. How can I give it's you more of my money? 
It's about the tarot cards and where they lie. You know, it wasn't like, like my father had passed away and it wasn't like she, she did say to me, did somebody close to you pass away? And I was like, yeah. So she knew <laughs> every single along- person on earth has had that happen. Every person. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, she kind of sensed, I, I felt like she sensed it. Um, when I said my dad died, she goes, yeah, she's like, I knew it was somebody, you know, <laughs> like just, super close. And, and you were you actually believe this. Like, can you understand how ridiculous this sounds? Uh, I guess it was kind of like you had to be there. I didn't, I didn't really no. feel like she was no, putting I feel me like on. I'm there. Yeah, they the do high was- percentage guesses and people like you were like, whoa, take my money. No, I mean, the only the only thing that bothered me about it was when she told me how much the reading was. She said, my uh, credit card machine is broken. So I said, OK, well, I have this amount of well, cash. Well, could she not see that have- coming? Whoa, whoa, whoa. How could she not anticipate her own credit card machine breaking? Like, I feel like she might sense that there'd be there'd be a disturbance in the chakras and she could get, you know, electrician in there to deal with it before, you know, cookie had to be inconvenienced. I don't know. She had said other people had to, like, bring money back because she didn't have the machine working. But then when I gave her my money, um, I needed, you know, change back. And then she didn't have any change. So I wound up paying $20 over the reading fee because she didn't have any change. She got a very, very healthy tip. Because and she couldn't. That's the anticipate, only thing that really bothered. But she, in, in all of her psychic wisdom, she couldn't anticipate that when people are having to pay her cash because her credit card machine is quote unquote down, she won't have enough cash to then give back for change. She couldn't have imagined that problem arising. This seems awfully short sighted for someone who can see into your past and traumas that are unspecific well, but life altering. <laughs> She also forgot that I was coming. So when oh, she's <laughs> so really she on top of things. Top. Well, in her fairness, she was looking for an oxygen tank for a family member. So she was distracted, she said. So I understood, you know, family first, of course. Um, I, I felt pretty good about the reading. She did say that um, my husband sometimes is very confused and frustrated with me, but she doesn't see him leaving me. So that's a good sign, right? It's, no, it's nothing of a sign. I think you wasting your money there increases the chances of Bobby taking a walk. <laughs> well, it's just like I just have to figure out now because obviously I can't go back there and pay for my chakra cleansing, and I don't know how to do it myself. So I just got to figure out how to do that because I, I'm completely blocked, and until I unblock myself, I'm not going to be to my full capacity. Can you imagine me even being better than what I am right now? But I'm blocked. Mm. I think the only thing that she was dead on target about was how much help you need. And, but again, that's a high likelihood guess to make, right? If you're someone throwing cash at a psychic in New Jersey, odds are you've got some issues and could probably work through those issues with a professional. So she's absolutely right about that, but it's not like it was unique to you although it is particularly applicable, I would say. Keep your money. Yeah. Don't waste another dime with this stuff. And maybe the way you can unblock your chakras is breaking your dry January. Maybe that'll unblock your chakra. That's my, think, that's my thought. I, I, I don't think you know anything about chakras, so I don't think... You, no, of course I don't, anything. but 
but it doesn't it doesn't matter because it's not a thing. But, but if somebody does know about it and they want to let you know about it to get to me, that would be great because as of right now, I'm forbidden to go back there to pay for my chakra cleansing. Okay, we'll leave it there. <laughs> back here tomorrow. If you have any uh, chakra advice for producer Christine, we've got to get you a Twitter account. That that's another thing we should talk about this week on the home stretch. Mm-hmm. You're tempted. I think it might be time. So hold that thought. Back here tomorrow for more of The Guy Benson Show, 3 to 6 Eastern, same time, same place. Have a great night. Thank you for listening. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.